Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, uh, the purpose of the Do One Better podcast is to encourage our listeners to be more philanthropic, to act sustainably, and embrace social entrepreneurship. And it'd be great if you subscribe to this podcast. It makes a world of difference for us. And today it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Tim Haworth, who is the CEO of United World Schools. And Tim, welcome on board. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation to, to join you. We should tell everyone that the, the, the main trigger for today's podcast is that you have just been announced as one of the winners of the WISE Awards, the uh, World Innovation Summit for Education Awards. We're absolutely honored, and it, it, it's an amazing group of organizations to be part of, and it's a big endorsement to our teams in Cambodia, Myanmar, Nepal, and our supporters around the world. Great. So tell me a little bit about United World Schools. You're the Chief Executive Officer of United World Schools. You've been there for just under a decade, if I understand correctly. Correct. And you actually are a teacher, uh, yeah. formerly a school teacher. Did your degree at Cambridge? How did you How did you find yourself running an an organization building schools in Southeast Asia? Uh, absolutely. So, so I think to to help answer that question, I might just talk very briefly about what a typical UWS school looks like and sounds like. Uh, which, which helps hopefully a little bit of context on, on the journey we're on because we, we, we develop schools for very, very remote communities, often ethnic minority, often subsistence agriculture communities living at or below the poverty line. And what binds them all together, although of course they're different, is the uh, really, really tough situation where you've got large populations of out-of-school children and their life pathways are massively limited as a result. And so I'm, I'm a teacher by, by trade. Both my parents are teachers. My sisters are teachers. So we, we, I guess, have sort of education in the blood. And United World Schools originally was a family charity. It was our family. It, it was it was founded by my father with my sister and I supporting him about 10 years ago. And we we did what we could to develop a few community schools for these kind of communities in a little remote region of Cambodia. And since 2009, we, we've We've had some success and we've met some amazing people en route. And so today we've got uh, just over 200 community schools in Cambodia, Myanmar and Nepal. And they're all helping communities who previously have had no access to any kind of formal education, no primary education whatsoever, to help them educate this, this generation of children and hopefully transform their lives as a result. And so one of the reasons I've massively enjoyed doing it as of course is our background as, as a family you know we've we've always recognized the importance of education uh, but also it's it's something that kind of links deeply with your core values uh, as, as as many of us in the uk get we've we have a, a a great education system and i've been lucky enough to benefit from that and so you sort of have a social contract in your head that you you sign up to and it says well, it'd be great to uh, help someone else on their journey. And, and that, I guess, was, was part of the, the core value of, uh, of developing United World Schools. How did you decide or the trustees decide that those three countries, those three markets, are the ones that you want to focus on? Yeah, Cambodia may not be the first name on everybody's list if sure. you're based here in London. How does that happen? Yeah. So it's a combination of, of opportunity and fit for our model. So the opportunity arose in, in Cambodia uh, because we happened to have some connections there. So at the time, my my, my father was volunteering with voluntary service overseas, VSO. Uh, he had spent two years 
in the northeast region. And for those of you who know the history of Cambodia, they, they've had a very, very tough uh, time since the Pol Pot regime, which, which effectively meant they were almost having to reset an education system. So, so there was an awful lot of work to do. Uh, and so in 2008, we had an opportunity to work with a, a little community that needed a school, and that's how United World Schools was formed. So, so that was, I guess, the opportunistic element of it. But as we began to scale the charity, as we figured out elements of the model and, and improved certain aspects of what we do, we had a look at where else this model could work and, and then went to Myanmar and again met some fantastic people in the Shan state of Myanmar, which is in a similar way is, is remote, is marginalized, a lot of ethnic minority communities. It's often beyond the reach of the government system. And then again, we met some fantastic people in Nepal. And so because we had a, a model that was, we thought was reasonably attractive to donors, like it was low cost, it was scalable, it was replicable, it was simple. And we could move relatively swiftly with developing community schools for these very remote communities. We gained traction across those those three countries. And some people we speak to have a sort of preference. You know, maybe they visit Cambodia, maybe they visit Nepal, etc. Maybe they're very interested in what's happening in Myanmar. But quite often, people are interested in the cause. They're interested in the fundamental human right of children being able to go to school and, and have a different life pathway because they can learn to read, write, and count. And so, I, I guess to answer your question succinctly. It's a combination of, of being strategic and being opportunistic uh, and making sure that our model is a good fit for, for every region we work in. And when you say the, the model is low cost, it's scalable, it's something that you can replicate, let's drill down a little bit into that and why is that the case and what does it look like when you go into a specific uh, region of a country and you say, okay, we're going to scout it out, we're going to put a school here or a number of schools and what does the whole thing look like and what does it's, the school itself look like? What does the model look like? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, let, let's, let's start to paint a picture of a typical UWS community school. And, and it would be built, uh, w with support and often led by community members in a, in a remote village or remote community that would be in a jungle area or maybe in a mountain area. Uh, the community themselves would largely be living at or below the poverty line. Uh, many of these communities are, are ethnic minority and they don't speak the national language. And that's a major barrier to the national education system, which often for these remote regions is under pressure you know, for, for budgetary and other reasons. Uh, and actually, if you then layer on the, the challenge of, of not speaking the national language, many of these communities are discriminated against simply through the, the language barriers that are presented. And so... A typical school for us would be serving 150, 200 children in a, in a community that would be otherwise marginalized to the extent of almost not being recognized by other government systems. Uh, and by developing the, the school community, our, our model hopes to engage from outset the local leadership that can take the, the school forward for the long term in partnership with the local government. So a typical school will have a couple of government teachers who are paid for by the government, placed by the government, and they, they, they work alongside our community teachers who speak the local language and understand the local context and are sensitized to, to local needs. Uh, but by doing so, we're, we're setting up a, a, a light-touch public-private partnership with a view to these schools becoming part of the government system over time. 
And that's what we're, we're trying, we're currently working on. That's what we're trying to do with our 200 or so community schools and community learning sites in, in the three countries, in Cambodia, Myanmar, and Nepal. But we're on a journey to transitioning them to the, the government system. And hopefully we, we as an organization will be able to exit from a really well run, well set up, but low cost community school. That sounds great. Is there much of a challenge in terms of bureaucracy or red tape? I know from personal experience, when you're trying to set up schools in specific countries, even basic things in terms of who owns a specific plot of land may not be clear in terms of official records. Absolutely. So how do you tackle the local bureaucracy, the legal framework? Uh, because again, you're based here in London and, uh, and you're trying to set up something that may not be that straightforward on the other <laughs> yes. end, of, on the other side of the world. Absolutely. And, and that's where our, our local teams are invaluable. And every day they are out in the regions, working with the local communities, working with the local community leaders and problem solving. And, and, and one of the, the core principles that we stuck to from outset is that the UWS model is, is a, an empowerment model. You can use the expression bottom up. I'm not a big fan of the expression bottom up, but maybe it, it, it gives the idea that we have local community members helping problem solve with the local knowledge, with the flexibility. Uh, and of course, we make sure that the land, for example, is allocated for a particular school project is legitimate. And often it will be community land. So sometimes it's donated land. For example, sometimes in Nepal, farmers will donate their paddy fields. Uh, and often there are very good reasons why they want to do that, such as they have a family themselves and they're very conscious that their children have no educational access. And so the one thing they, they can do is, is they can provide the land for, for the school. So we have to be a little bit flexible, a little bit, I guess, entrepreneurial in the way we develop the schools. But, but fundamentally, what we do is we work with community from outset. And if we're not confident that the land is appropriately uh, ours to develop the school in partnership with the local community, then we would hold, hold off and we would scrutinize it further and we would, we would go through a process to either find different land or, or, or look for different communities. All right. Do you spend a lot of your time on conference calls with these, uh, with your, your, your management team in Cambodia, in Nepal? Is this uh, like a Monday absolutely. morning uh, team meeting or how, how do you? What's the what's the reporting or the dashboard that you have, and to ensure that things are moving along and that uh, there's a great two way communication? Yeah, and and it's amazing actually since since we started in sort of two thousand nine two thousand ten, uh, the way that for example three G four G has made the world or certainly our view of the world much smaller uh, has been noticeable. Uh, so for example, just just this morning, uh, we were on on phone to Cambodia, we're on the phone to Nepal, uh, and, and we are checking in on latest projects. We're, we're, we are answering some of the, the queries and questions and, and, and interesting ideas that some of our donors have raised recently. And, and so we have direct connectivity to, to our teams in country. And so that means uh, we, are, we are effectively a sort of end-to-end delivery, i.e. with the same organization raises the money that then spends the money that, that then reports back to those donors. And, and it means that we can, we can operate relatively quickly when we have an opportunity. Uh, and and, and as, we, as we mature and develop, we're actually looking to develop more strategic partnerships. But the way we're structured, it means that we have regular communication with, with, all, with all three of our, our countries and, and, and quite often uh, almost daily communication. Yeah. Here's a bit of a technical question, but one which I would really like the answer to. How do you 
track the progress of all of these various projects that you have live at any given time? Does each country head avail themselves of their own methodology, Excel or whatever it is to keep an eye on that and then they report back? Do you have a unified central software platform that you use for everybody? Or I imagine you have various live projects going on Correct. right now. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we, we use Google Docs, uh, simply because it's, it's a relatively robust platform and, and you don't need great Wi-Fi or great 3G connection to be mm -hmm. able to, to access it. Uh, we have a, a series of relatively straightforward and simple spreadsheets that, that we monitor, for example, the establishment and development of schools. Uh, we collect data every month, uh, from each project and that allows us to uh, to report, for example, to, to donors. It allows us to monitor the, the progress of each school on a month-by-month -month basis, quarter-by-quarter, -quarter, and, and annual data. And, and also it enables us to, and it, it probably sounds a little bit cold, but, but actually to analyze each project on sort of a, a cost-per-child basis. So, yeah. so that means we have a very simple dashboard, and, and we, can, we can drill down on a project-by-project -project basis, on a region-by-region, -region, on a country-by-country, to really make sure that the financials all, all make sense and we can be very objective in our decision making. Yeah. In terms of the quality, so you mentioned the, the cost mm. and the scalability. How do you measure the quality? How do you ensure that the quality of education, the quality of the facilities of the teacher, of the teachers meets your standards? Absolutely. And, and the quality question is one actually that we debate internally a lot. And, and, and actually, I think a number of, of charities and NGOs look at the difference between putting the, the foot down in terms of growth and accelerating the, the, the amount of work going on or, or really, really promoting the quality. And, and that's a tension that we, we also have and, and we, we think very carefully about. We, we, we take a position that, that says, look, we, we are aiming for these schools to be part of a national system. So therefore, we are sensitive to what national standards are and aim to always deliver this, the the educational outcomes and outputs to be aligned or better than government averages. And so we're often starting from a position where children are using the national language as their, as their second language. Uh, we're often starting with, with very little uh, literacy and numeracy in the community. So, so if we can target a quality that's aligned to national averages, that, then there's a significant value add there. So, so the, the, the progress that children are making will be relatively clear. We also agreed from outset, and we stick firm on this principle, that, that we are a, a satisficing organization with respect to quality, rather than trying to, say, gold plate the delivery of our education in each of our schools. And the principle behind this, it, it, I guess, is fairly simple, that it's better to give another child an adequate and sometimes good education in preference to trying to gold plate the education of a child that's already in our schools or already in a, in a nearby school. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the teacher training, I mean, presumably a lot of your efforts are deployed to ensuring the teaching quality is good, not just the facilities themselves, right? Correct. And, and so we, ha we have a cascade, a train-the-trainer model. So we have teacher trainers, we call them education officers, in, in all of our countries. And, and they are delivering a, a very simple teacher training uh, curriculum and developing pedagogy uh, aligned to what hopefully is is good solid practice again we're not necessarily trying to win the world teacher award of the year but we're trying to make sure that, that every child that turns up to one of the uws community schools has basic solid proficient education uh, appropriate to their context and and so for example 
we will work with community teachers on things like safeguarding child protection. We will work on the, the principles of child-centric learning. We may well, for example, when it comes to literacy, we may well use flashcards for uh, for developing certain literacy techniques. Uh, there's a, there was a moment actually where we, we learned a lot as an organization uh, when we were talking to the local uh, school support committee and we were saying, look, we, we understand that the children are, are turning to school and, and they're engaging in the reading, but maybe they're not deeply engaging in, in the books and, 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 and learning to read the national language. And we just need to sort of figure out what, what's, um, what's holding us back here? It was a few years ago, and, and actually I remember the, the feedback from the community leader was really clear. They said, look, the children understand that it's quite interesting to go to school, but when they go home, there are no books. There is no uh, base for children reading at home because most of the adults in these communities, unfortunately, are, are illiterate subsistence mm-hmm. farmers. Mm-hmm. And so it was a real hit yourself on the forehead moment where we said, well, what can we do to try and inspire uh, a love of, of reading and, sure. and inspire learning through those those kind of processes? And we put in a very simple library in each of our schools. Uh, and by simple, we mean $200, $250 worth of books, a very simple set of bookshelves made by local carpenters. So it's so a relatively low cost. And it was transformational. And we said, look, this is a really obvious thing to do. So then every single school that we had and, and every future school, we then rolled out with a basic library. And it has fundamentally changed the approach to, for example, reading. That's wonderful. Tell me, so congratulations again on winning this year's WISE Award. What exactly was it that made those good folks say yes? The, the folks at the United World School deserved to win. Was there a specific project? I know they focused on rewarding innovation and creativity for endeavors that tackle global educational challenges. What was it specifically about your nomination and eventual success in, in securing this honor? Yeah, so, so there were six actually organizations that, that won the, the WISE Award this year, and we're one of those six. Uh, and, and the feedback we've had from, from the, the, the award so far is based on the, the scalability of our project. So we've, we've had 30,000 or so children through our schools over the last 10 years. Uh, we've, we've done so in a relatively low-cost way. And I think some of the things that were, were highlighted when they, when they looked very carefully at our project, one of which was our, our public-private partnership, so working with the local government and with national government, at every stage of developing the schools, sustaining the schools, and, and, and gradually transitioning these schools to the local education authority. Uh, the second thing that, that was pulled out and highlighted was that we are very much focused on empowerment of local communities, sensitive to local challenges, to local languages, uh, but making sure that, that at every step we, we have informed decision-making uh, and to some extent giving choice and, and a voice to local communities and when you could possibly even play that forward and, and say, look, this, through that process, you're actually developing democratization through, through these, these educational projects because it's through more literate and numerate communities that you can begin to, to access, for example, certain government uh, systems uh, such as healthcare. Uh, but but it, was the, it was the community-sensitive empowerment uh, methodology that, that was highlighted as good practice. Is it difficult to identify these ideal communities in which you can build a school? Because you mentioned they're in very remote remote parts of the country. There's 
not much by way of electricity and so forth. How do you or your team go about identifying such a community? I guess it's by definition, it's not immediately evident where it would be, right? I mean, it's, it's a great privilege actually to, to be working in these very remote communities, very remote regions, because some of these communities will, will rarely, if ever, have, uh, should we say, foreign faces uh, sort of visiting them, saying hello. Uh, and, and therefore, we need to tread very carefully with that in mind. Uh, and that's where our local teams are absolutely vital. So that they will triangulate their, their data sets. They initially will talk to the local government who are, are almost always uh, aligned to, to our vision, which is, look, we want as many children in this region to go to school, to learn to read, write and count. You know, we're, we're fed up with having lots of out of school children in this in this region. Uh, and so we're starting from a position that we're all pointing in the same direction. We also need to be mindful that we're not a uh, maybe the risk of being a political football. And so we have to therefore say, well, actually, are we objectively developing these communities in the regions and in, in the communities uh, that are absolutely right for us. And so that's where we need to do our own reconnaissance and do our own uh, surveys, uh, household surveys, uh, the um, demographics is the word uh, mm-hmm. uh, that we're looking for. Um, and so then we triangulate that against what the local community themselves are saying, because it's quite often the case that the, for example, let's say an Akka or Lahu group in Myanmar, they, they know where Akka and Lahu groups live. They know where the villages are. And they often will be pointing us to in the direction of what could be our next project, our next school. And so we triangulate those three data sources, government, our own information on the ground, plus our local communities. And when when it all looks good, when, when we get a sort of green light uh, in, against all three, that's when we would we would sit down with the community and talk about a school establishment project. Right. In terms of a new school, do you ever look at what's around that school? And by that, I mean quite possible that you build a school and it becomes oversubscribed very quickly. So some children won't be able to attend, but could be within your vicinity or others that are maybe just slightly too far away to make it viable for them to attend that school, but still part of that broader community. Is there anything to be said or done in terms of parental engagement, having that school be a hub of excellence for the broader community, if you will? And so how do you look at that holistic piece and um, try to make sure that those kids who are in that school or within the vicinity actually are in the best position possible? Absolutely. So, so being sensitive to the needs of each community is absolutely vital for the long-term success of the project. And, and so that's where we approach each project with a relatively scalable and replicable model that's sensitive to what the local community need. Mm-hmm. So we almost always, when we develop a school, make sure that we are developing a clean drinking water source. Now, that may well be capturing rain, rainwater, adding water filters, uh, or right. it may be adding water filters based on water that we can collect from a nearby river. Uh, mm-hmm. We make sure we've got latrines installed in the school in the schools for girls and boys uh, to make sure that, you know, that there is a certain uh, dignity mm-hmm. built into, the, in, into the, the, the school infrastructure. Uh, we make sure that uh, wherever possible, we, we develop uh, an, an environment that's safe, but also appealing to children. So that would be, for example, uh, developing a playground and, and developing a playground using local materials, you know, using local wood, using repurposed or re- recycled, uh, for example, old 
uh, tractor tires can, can make great sure. great playground act- uh, uh, resources and activities. Uh, but what, what we try and do is we make sure that in each community, we're very mindful of what is required for the school to have a long-term success. Unfortunately, we have to be really disciplined here. And we can't turn up and say, what does this community need? Plural, because that risks scope creep and risks us getting drawn into areas that frankly we don't have deep expertise in. And sometimes that, that is really tough. You know, if, if a community, for example, needs really good healthcare intervention for whatever reason, or it needs a really thoughtful water and, water and sanitation, uh, investment infrastructure, then we, we need to be mindful of that and we need to think about how, what can we do to influence and help, such as do we talk to local government about putting in uh, more support for that kind of thing. But we've had to be really focused on what we do, which is to develop community schools and then the small number of things that can support children attending those community schools on a regular basis. It's very complicated establishing that link with those key stakeholders in the local community level, identifying who they are, communicating with them, nurturing that relationship. And that's where particularly starting in a new region is tough. So where we've built a certain track record and have a little bit of um, credibility, should we say, in a region, we tend to get community leaders approaching us and saying, look, could we have a conversation about developing a school for my community? On the other hand, where we have grown and where we've expanded, for example, uh, where we've developed uh, into a new province in Cambodia or a new district in Nepal. To some extent, you're starting from scratch. And actually, that is challenging. And so winning hearts and minds is certainly uh, part of the process that we mm-hmm. go through. Uh, we have to be very mindful that this is a, an empowerment project and a sustainable project. It's not a kind of colonial turn up and we're going to build you a school project. You know, crikey, that would be, I think, undermining the very premise on which, we, 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 which we're working. Uh, so, so therefore, particularly with new regions, we're very mindful about building relations with the local government, with local leaders, and, and then making sure that when we commit to a project, we absolutely commit to that project. And, and it's a great, great credit to the teams in Cambodia, Myanmar, and Nepal that, that every single project that we started is running today. And that doesn't mean that we haven't had plenty of challenges en route. Uh, you know, what we do, frankly, is, is, uh, is challenging almost every step, but, but, Within that, it's quite it's quite exciting. It, it certainly uh, sort of motivates me. I think it motivates uh, all of our all of our colleagues, all of our teams around around the world and in, in, in uh, Cambodia, Myanmar, Nepal. Speaking of challenges, any particular challenge that uh, when it when it arose kept kept you awake? One of the challenges that we we continue to grapple with is because of the nature of our remote community schools, we haven't necessarily got a labor market that we can tap into mm-hmm. that have highly educated or even just well-educated uh, professionals. You know, we, we, we are working in areas that aren't easy for anybody to live, let alone people who maybe have, have had a sort of high school and university education, maybe they've been to the capital city, and although they're passionate about supporting their country, it, it, is, it is sometimes a tough ask to say, look, c- can you go and and, and live in this remote community, away from your friends and family, etc. On the other hand, we've we've tried to to embrace that by asking our our teams to to problem solve. And, and then the Nepal team actually led this, which was really interesting. When they said, "Look, we think we could set up a fellowship scheme 
And so okay. this would be to take uh, university graduates from, let's say, Kathmandu-based universities in Nepal and say to them, look, can you commit for two years to working in a remote and marginalized community? Because you will raise the standard of, of aspiration. You will be a mentor to young people. You'll be, to some extent, a, uh, a sort of guide, guiding light or, or um, raising the, the bar in terms of what, you, what the, the young children and, and the students that we are able to uh, support raise their expectations for their life pathways. And by giving young people from places like Kathmandu the chance to go and live and work in, in remote communities, but not necessarily forever, for a finite sort of two-year period, it's been really, really effective. And so that's uh, that's one way that we've managed to get some some highly educated, brilliant people um, into into some of these communities. And, and you can just see when you go and look at the schools where these fellows have, have spent a bit of time that they are really, really good. Yeah. Now, you've grown a lot over the last few years, right? We have. And um, what does is, what is the future hold for you? What, what are you looking at if you're looking at the next 10 years and trying to put a tag on what success looks like? So, so undoubtedly, we want to continue to do everything we can to get as many children who currently have no kind of educational access whatsoever, get them into school, help them on their life pathway by enabling them to read, write, and count. Uh, we've talked internally about scaling up the organization to having reached over 100,000 children. So, so, so far, we've, we've reached 30,000 children over, over the last 10 years or so. Uh, we've also talked internally about what we can do to help deliver the 2030 Sustainable Development Global Goals, mm-hmm. uh, particularly uh, the, the Goal 4, that, the, where, where we, we're looking to, to some extent, to eradicate the concept of the out-of-school child globally. Uh, and, and so, you know, th- these are these are big, bold visions. And to some extent, that that is within our nature. You know, we, we are uh, at every stage of our journey trying to be as, as bold uh, with our with our vision and with our uh, ambition as we can. And by doing so, I, I think we've had a lot of success over the years. Uh, exactly what that looks like in 10 years is, is a great question. Uh, undoubtedly, it, we want to continue to develop both the quality and the quantity of, uh, of of schools that we have and therefore children who are able to go to school. Uh, we want to work increasingly with like-minded partners around the world, so, so uh, forming strategic partnerships, more supportive partnerships, and to also to make sure that over the next 10 years we really are able to successfully fully transition our schools to the local education system and by doing so increasing the capacity hopefully the quality of those particular education systems so so one of the things that that regularly we talk about as a sector is how can we support systematic change and and development improvement and we hope that by by transitioning our current schools into the government system what we're doing is we're transitioning really good well-run schools into that system and improving it uh, but also that frees up organizational capacity i.e united world schools to then go and develop more schools in regions where where our support is is desperately needed yeah now are you focused on those three countries exclusively or if somebody were in Vietnam and they said, well this sounds great and I'm listening to this podcast uh, this Tim character sounds like he knows what he's doing I think we could have some schools here in Vietnam. 
what happens then? It's, it's a fantastic question. And we are absolutely committed to doing everything we can to develop UWS's reach. Uh, I have to be slightly careful about committing at any stage to a, uh, mm-hmm. to a brand new country. So I wouldn't necessarily say right now Vietnam is absolutely the fourth country we're going into. Uh, but what we would say is we've, we've developed the charity and, and the NGO by meeting with great people who have had their own vision, had their own ideas, uh, where it's been a great fit for our model, uh, we've gained traction and we've done some, some, some great stuff. I mean, our, our, our needs in terms of what we're looking for with new regions or new countries are relatively straightforward. You know, we work in low cost environments and that means we can scale our projects quickly. Uh, we work in, in regions that are reasonably stable and, and typically would be described as post conflict. Uh, and we work in regions where we're both needed and wanted by the national local government. And of course, we're also making sure that wherever we work, what we're doing is we're tackling the, the, the global issue of out of school children in the best possible way. To support you, if somebody's interested in supporting you, I think I saw on your website that somebody could sponsor a school. Uh, but what are the different ways through which somebody could support your mission, help you achieve the goals, whether they happen to be in one of these three countries, whether they happen to be in the UK or elsewhere? We, we are absolutely honored and inspired to be working with a whole bunch of organizations and part schools uh, in the UK and around the world. And often they are twinned with one of our projects. So, for example, we have a partner school group who, uh, who support our community schools on a one-on-one twinning. And, and so these are partner schools that are typically some of the more affluent schools uh, in the world. And their students fundraise for the, for the uh, community school that, that we develop. Uh, and, and by doing so, are developing acts of global citizenship, are developing an understanding of what it means to be, to some extent, at the other end of the education spectrum. So, so our supporters are often organizations such as partner schools we have a number of of corporate partners who who very generously support again either our the development of our schools or the development of the organization generally uh, we have a a number of of individuals who for for a number of reasons have, have sponsored their own school so it's uh, it costs us about 35,000 US dollars to develop a school I say, I say about because sometimes some of the schools are slightly smaller but typically it's about $35,000 to 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 build uh, a UWS community school and then 10,000 US dollars to run it each year. Uh, we also actively encourage people to say, well, well, actually, education is a long game. Uh, and therefore, it's incredibly important for us to have support for children's education for X number of years. And we have we've had a number of individuals and, and trusts and foundations who have, have said to us, OK, well, this is interesting. And, and what what does this cost? And when, when we tell them, well, it really is quite low cost and it costs us uh, about $2 per child per week to, to sponsor their education. They sometimes don't believe us, uh, but the nature of our model is that we can deliver education at that sort of price point, uh, which, which hopefully makes it very attractive in terms of high-impact uh, philanthropy. How many, um, how many children are in an average school? and Do you cater through all age brackets or just yeah. primary, secondary? Yeah, so, so we're, we're a primary-focused operator. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean all of our children are primary aged. So, for example, we may well have a, a 12 or 14 year old joining a, a grade one, two, three class uh, because they've never had a chance to go to school themselves. Sure. Uh, but most of our children are primary age. 
We also run uh, ECD, so kindergartens, mm-hmm. early, early childhood, and that is re- a relatively light-touch model based on school readiness, uh, and it's a complementary program to, to hopefully make sure that grade one is, is is a really effective time and a massively important time in terms of the, the development of, uh, of each child's learning journey. Uh, and, and so we, we are a, a, a simple primary education provider, but, but we don't necessarily uh, get out the, the birth certificate. Not that in many of these communities uh, the children have birth certificates, but, uh, but we're, we're a stage, not age provider. Yeah, it's great. What's the key takeaway? If you had a key takeaway that you wanted to share with the audience, if they, if they remember something about this podcast, what would you want that to be? Absolutely. Our key takeaway is to keep using our mission as the North Star. So we keep pointing our thinking, our planning, our reviewing, our evaluation based on delivering the mission. And so what that means is sometimes it's about really articulating a a bold vision aligned to the purpose of delivering that mission. Sometimes it's about thinking about the process what do we need in order to deliver the mission you know is it about just being simple here is it about making sure this is replicable is it making sure this is scalable or low cost uh, sometimes it's about making sure we recruit and retain the right people who are mission aligned but i think what what brings it all together is that we have a an absolutely clear focus on on delivering the mission so it's using the mission as our north star that sounds very very sensible indeed i think clarity of purpose focus you can't go wrong with that. Tim, congratulations once again. Thank you. Uh, and, and thanks also for the, uh, the podcast series. I'm an avid listener, and I would actively encourage people to listen to them, as I'm sure they are. It's been such a pleasure. Take good care, and we'll speak soon. And congratulations once again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <music>